This podcast was recorded at the Battle of Ideas Festival at the Barbican in London. I think the fact that so many of you are here probably renders this discussion um, null and void. Uh, If you can turn out on a Sunday morning for a discussion on free will, uh, that must be. Uh, Maybe I'm being naive evidence for it. Maybe there are other reasons you're here, uh, which we can discuss. But welcome back uh, to the start of day two of the Battle of Ideas. My name is Angus Kennedy from the Institute of Ideas. I'll be chairing this session this morning. Uh, Free will, just an illusion, question mark, Uh, which is supported by the Wellcome Trust. Daniel uh, speaking is actually from the Wellcome Trust as well. We're very grateful for their uh, continued long-running support for the Battle of Ideas. Just two things I want to flag up. Uh, The discussion around free will obviously has a very long history, and it's entirely possible we will not answer the question uh, in the next 90 minutes. Um, I'm positive that we might make a good stab at it, but... We have to be somewhat realistic, uh, given that it's deba- been debated from you know, Epicurus onwards uh, through God, uh, the 17th century, uh, and up to the present day. Um, I just say that because we should bear in mind some historical perspective when we look at these questions and not take them as a purely uh, philosophical abstract one. Uh, one of the things I'd like us to explore is what's different in our free will talk uh, today, the way in which we... Uh, imagine and see the possibilities and also the limits of free will today uh, as opposed to previous times in history. And just to give you one example of how some people think about free will today, I don't know if you noticed that Oliver Letwin, uh, MP this week, uh, he's the Minister of State at the Cabinet Office, uh, he spoke at the 21st anniversary conference, I, I didn't know this was possible, the 21st anniversary conference of alcohol in moderation. Uh, in, in London. Some party. I, I think, yeah, if you've been going to 21 years of alcohol in moderation, it's like, something. But he, he spoke there on Thursday, um, and he said in support of minimum pricing that alcohol should be made unpleasantly expensive uh, so people would not go home and get blind drunk anymore. Uh, presumably he means that maybe poor people will become less unpleasant uh, as a result of this expense, or maybe he just wants them to become poorer. Uh, I'm not sure, but he concluded his discussion by saying <clears throat> around minimum pricing that no heavy-handed legislation would follow in minimum pricing being introduced. Quote, what we really need to have is a population that, of its own free will, chooses to behave in a sensible fashion. <laughs> so to introduce my panel, as I said, speaking first, Dr. D- Daniel Glazer, who's the head of special projects uh, in public engagement at the Wellcome Trust, He's an honorary senior research fellow at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London. Uh, Followed on my far left by Neil Lawson, who's chair of COMPASS, which is the Ideas and Action Group for the Democratic Left. He's also the author of All Consuming, uh, a a book about advertising, which I hope you can uh, buy um, in the Foils Bookshop or from Neil. (laughs) He's also a former advisor to Gordon Brown and co-editor of Progressive Century. Uh, Third to speak on my immediate left is Dr. Ellie Lee. She's a reader in social policy at the University of Kent in Canterbury uh, and also the director of the Centre for Parenting Culture Studies, um, which examines, as I say, many contemporary deterministic readings uh, of childhood today. And then to speak last on my far right, Professor Joe Frigeri, who's come all the way from from Malta. He's the head of philosophy in the University of Malta, but also a poet 
uh, a playwright, theatre director, and three times winner of Malta's National Literary Prize. So can give the panel a quick round of applause, please. <laughs> and Daniel, if you'd get us, get us going. Sure, I'd be happy to. Good morning, everyone. Um, uh, <clears throat> kind of surprised to see you all here, but uh, um, it's, it's lovely uh, to be here at 10.30 in the morning in the Barbican uh, out of my own free will. Um, I'm a neuroscientist. Uh, I'm not here to speak on behalf of Wellcome uh, Trust. And what I thought I would do, therefore, is to tell you about some experiments um, in the five minutes I've got to start with um, uh, about free will. And I suppose, um, you know, in the sort of uh, combative rhetorical framework of this debate, I shall be arguing that it is an illusion uh, but it is an illusion that matters, uh, free will. Um, I'm not going to get much into the whole uh, Laplacian you know, conceit, the notion that uh, if you knew the position of every atom in the universe, you could uh, predict where they were going to be forever. I'm not going to do that one, although we'll probably come to it you know, later on. Um, I'm going to confine myself to the head. And to Angus's point about the kind of nowness of this debate... Um, there are plenty of findings from neuroscience which you th- might think would inform uh, the conversation, but I'm not going to deal with the imaging stuff uh, much in my opening remarks. I think we'll come to that in discussion. So the first thing I wanted to tell you about is actually an experiment that was sort of done in the 60s. Many of you will know it, uh, Gray Walter uh, and Libet's experiments about uh, what it's like to choose to do things. Um, just as a quick sense, if you, if you think you've heard the experiment I'm about to describe, um, put your hand up now. Okay, so I'd say that's about a fifth or a quarter, so it bears repetition. Um, but I'll do it quickly because the, the, the central principle is quite simple. Um, uh, th- this experiment was first conducted by Gray Walter on people with exposed brains, but you can do it uh, with people without exposed brains um, by measuring the electrical activity on the surface of the head, the electrical corticogram. And essentially what you want these people to be doing is to be choosing to press a button at a certain point. So you arm them in the the original experiments with a a slide advance button, uh, you know, like next slide button. And and the instruction you give them is to press it whenever they like. Um, And uh, again, I'm going to give you the details of the experiment um, exhaustively, but essentially what happens is that something goes on in the brain uh, which you can detect externally uh, close to half a second in some cases before the person is aware of having made the choice. Right? So um, uh, one way you could do that would be to look at the brain activity around the time the button is pressed, and what you'll find is that there's something you know, much earlier uh, than the button press. But that's okay, because it could be just them getting ready to press the button. And so the sneaky bit was where uh, uh, Grey Walter disconnected the slide advance uh, mechanism from the button Right, and uh, he connected it to the brain detector, right, to the thing that was detecting these readiness potentials, and uh, and this uh, you know this was done in the middle of the experiment. So initially, the person was pressing the button and advancing the slide, and then after a while, uh, they sneakily switched over to the uh, brain advancing the slide. And and the subjective report of people was that it was really frustrating, because every time they were about to decide to press the button, the bloody thing moved. Okay, so in other words, the, the, you know, I was I was just sitting there, sitting there, sitting there, just. Like, Oh, just, just as I was about to decide to press it, it moved. In other words, that the, the, the um, uh, slide knew that the person was going to press the button before the person did. And this was the strong subjective impression. Right? So what this suggests, and we can unpick this, uh, I'm sure, with Joe as we roll, but uh, the, the thing which we think we're doing when we're choosing to do something 
is an illusion, right? The choice to do it, the, the action, is not something which we are aware of, right? So the, the consciousness uh, bit of free will is probably something we're going to let, need to let go of quite soon. So it's illusory in that sense. The second experiment I wanted to talk to you about uh, is not really one from neuroscience, but uh, it's described in Dan Dennett's... Uh, sorry, in, um, uh, Dan Dennett clearly has done a lot of stuff on this, but uh, in uh, Danny Kahneman's um, brilliant book, Thinking, comma, Fast or Slow... Fast and slow. And uh, it's, the, it's what I call, I'm going to give a version of it called the Second Order Lady Macbeth effect. And this is, um, again, trying to loosen the notion that we choose what we do, right? So the experiment uh, goes as follows uh, We divide you into two groups in this hall, and you're each given a story. So the story uh, begins for both groups like this uh, You're sitting at your desk, uh, you get up to go and get a cup of coffee. As you walk past your colleague's desk, you accidentally knock her mug off her desk. It falls on the floor and breaks. Okay? In the first scenario, uh, what happens is that you pick up the pieces of the mug, put it back on her desk, you go back to your desk, and you send her an email, and it says, Dear Susie, I was walking past your desk and saw that your mug was broken on the floor. I picked up the pieces, but please be careful because there may be some shards I've missed. All right? So that's the first thing you do. And that's what one half of you read. And in the, the other half of you read the scenario where you pick up the pieces, you put it back on the desk, you go back to your desk, you dial her extension rather sneakily because she's not at her desk, and you leave her a voicemail. And the voicemail says, Dear Susie, I was walking past your desk and noticed that your mug was broken on the floor. Uh, I picked up the pieces, um, put it on your desk, but please be careful because there may be some shards. Right? So both groups tell a lie, uh, but one group tells a lie by email and the other group tells a lie by voicemail. Okay? And then both groups are brought back together and they're given a shopping task. And in the shopping task, they're given 20 items and they have to, from, from a, you know, a, 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 a fictional supermarket shelf, and they have to choose 10 of them and they're told that there's going to be a sort of mental arithmetic task afterwards on the prices of them and how, how they make change from them and so on. And, and this is all an elaborate setup because in amongst the items, amongst the cornflakes and, and the milk and the porridge and so on, uh, is a, a bottle of mouthwash and uh, a bottle of hand wash. Right? And the result of the experiment is that the people who told the lie by email uh, choose the hand wash more frequently than the mouthwash, and those who told the lie by voicemail, choose the mouthwash more, easily, more readily than they choose the handwash. And this is called the second-order Lady Macbeth effect. It's a beautiful experiment. And I guess it begins to undermine this notion that when we you know, choose things, we choose things for reasons of which we're even slightly aware. And again, we'll come back in the discussion, I guess, to the question of whether that's a surprising result or not. Kahneman, rather charmingly, I think, and my wife falls into this category, a lot of people he tells this experiment to flatly deny that it's possible, or if it's possible, it wouldn't happen to them. Right? And so you know, we, we, are preserve, we do preserve many of us this sense that we choose what we do and that we know what's going on inside our heads. And, uh, and that, that fond notion is one that we might want to address. The third thing I want to tell you about, uh, and this is the third and last thing I want to tell you about, is the field of practical epistemology. And again, um, I'll, I'll defer uh, to my philosophical colleagues to tell me how... Uh, they say plausible, uh, this branch of philosophy, if it even is a branch of philosophy. I kind of think it isn't. Uh, practical epistemology. Epistemology is the structure of knowledge or something, right? Yeah? And practical epistemology is when that makes a difference. And so the question is, what does how we think our brains work do for us in practice? Right? The question is, what does how we think our brains work do for us in practice? So very briefly, Barbara Dweck did a cool series of experiments, again, all these good experiments, crossover designs and all that stuff, you take a bunch of school children, you give them all a one-day intervention about neuroscience. They, you know, people come into their schools and they teach them about it. Uh, they all get the same course, except for in the middle of the day, they're split into two groups, and one group gets a course all about how 
The structure of your brain is uh, determined within a week of uh, conception. That the bits that are going to be seeing bits are seeing bits from the beginning. If you damage this bit of the seeing bit, you'll never be able to see in that bit of the world and all this kind of brain anatomy stuff. And the other group at the same time, which is all true, gets a bit about how your brain changes every time you see anything and there's constant sprouting of axons and synapses are regenerating all the time. So one gets a lecture on brain plasticity and the other gets a lecture on brain anatomy and how fixed it is. And both, both lectures are true. They, the two streams reconverge and, uh, uh, and the day continues. They follow them up a year later and the group that was told that the brain is plastic do much better over the following year at school than the group that was told that the brain is fixed. Okay? Now, both are true. It's just an emphasis thing. But what you believe about how your brain works changes how you study and how you approach learning. The, the, the effect seems to be that if you believe the brain's plastic, you focus energy on things you're getting better at. Um, if you believe the brain's fixed, you just focus your time on the things you're very good at already. And this difference in learning style makes all the difference. So I don't think we have evidence for free will uh, being what it seems like in our heads, or you know, choosing to have a coffee rather than a, a glass of water. But I do think that what we think is going on in our heads probably does make a difference to how we act. Okay, thank you, Daniel. <laughs> Neil. Um, thank you. Um, look, you ask a politician along to come and talk about free will, so you get a political response. And I start here by saying that we make history but not in conditions of our own choosing. I didn't say that, obviously, originally. Mark said that. And that's where I start from. We make history, but not in conditions of our own choosing. So what does that mean? We are born fantastically, beautifully, wonderfully different. And yet, and yet we live in a world, if, if that was true, well, it is true, but if, if there weren't forces around us, then we would live in a world of fantastic, beautiful diversity, complexity, difference. And we don't, I don't think. I think we live in a world of amazing, unbelievable conformity. Um, and why is that? Because I think that essentially that we live in uh, a consumer society um, which takes our ability to be wonderfully, beautifully different, creative, innovative and makes us do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. I look around the audience and I look at myself and I see an audience and a panel and a me who makes infinitely kind of complex decisions about what it is we wear, the jumpers, the glasses, the shirts, the bags, the whatever... We make these decisions, you know, about who we are and what we are because that's what I think we're conditioned to do in a consumer society. Um, every, every society reproduces itself, and this is now one that is doing it to an amazing effect, which reduces our, our idea, I think, of our ability to think for ourselves and to act for ourselves. Um, I always go back and refer to the film The Matrix, um, which seems to me a pretty good kind of uh, analogy for consumer society. Um, we, we live to serve a machine, not the other way round. Um, uh, we're born to consume. Uh, we consume avidly. Uh, we do it all the time. It isn't the only thing we do, but it's the predominant way in which we now reproduce our society. I say we do it and we think that we have free will, but we all follow, and now the globe follows, the same kind of trends in the same kind of direction. There is only one way to be. Of course, we express our individual freedom because we by this particular blue shirt or these particular blue jeans. But actually, we're just all on the same treadmill, pretending that we have free choice, that we have free will, that we can decide what kind of life and what sort of world we want to live in. Because we're conditioned to do that. We're conditioned to do it every day with the 3,000 brand images that are projected 
to us every day that we see on billboards, on televisions, in magazines, through the vast army, the consumer uh, uh, industrial complex of designers and psychologists and advertisers and marketers who make us think the way they want us to think. And we're just at the tip of the iceberg of this all-consuming society as they get into our brains and understand where the buy button is and what it is and how it's activated with new uh, technologies, the whole way in which you know Google and Facebook and all of that is amounting masses and masses of information to understand exactly what we like and exactly who we are and when they can sell to us so that we stay on this treadmill. And, of course, we're not stupid. We know this. We know that we're on this treadmill, but there is nothing else to do. My favourite adverts are the ones from Selfridges. They run during their annual um, sales where they say you want it, you buy it, you forget it. They know exactly that we know that this is a preposterous, useless way to live. Um, And so they play that back to us and we become part of the game and we're in on the joke. But as long as you're in on the joke... But the the idea all the time is to eradicate alternative ways of being, and it's incredibly successful. How can you free yourself from this? Of course you can say don't buy it, but everyone does. Why does everyone do it? We have to think why they do it. And there there is only one word which gets us anywhere close to what kind of society we live in, and that's the word totalitarian. The word totalitarian means the eradication of alternative ways of being. And there are virtually no alternative ways of being in in, in a consumer society. If you want to be outside, in the past there was always the hope that the working class would come and save us. There was an alternative class that would set up an alternative kind of future, but there is no alternative agency anymore. The poor just want to be like the rich. They don't want to overthrow them, they just want to be like them. And their only purpose is to police us, for us not to, because we don't want to be like them, the failed consumers. They're the one thing that keeps us on the treadmill of consuming, because we don't want to fall off, we don't want to be like them. So it's difficult to think where the alternatives are going to come from if we are on this treadmill, if this conditioning is so, uh, uh, so acute. Because it doesn't do it by the jackboot, it does it by the Gucci boot. It does it by seduction. We're seduced into this life. We like it, we get enough from it, there's compensation. We enjoy the thrill of the till, we enjoy buying, and it keeps us going till the next time, the next fix because there isn't anything else to do. There are no other places to be. You can't be citizens. You can only be consumers. There is no other way to be. Um, We try and live in the cracks where we can, doing different things, behaving in different kinds of ways, but it doesn't amount to any kind of serious challenge. Even when you get the biggest crash of capitalism caused by the very consumer society, by the indebtedness to buy this stuff, the biggest crash since 1870... All we do is think about how we get back on the treadmill as soon as possible because that's the only way for us to be. So I think um, the space for free will is incredibly uh, limited. And, you know, unlike communism or fascism, uh, I think consumerism is getting much, much closer to the kind of totalitarian idea um, because, for this reason, because we are forced to live as if we were free. And that's the way it captures us. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Neil. Actually, one of my main worries when I was putting this panel together was, how am I going to get anybody to come up and argue against free will? So that, that's two for... Two down, isn't it? Two, two, two down, two for the illusion. Ellie. Yeah. I don't know whether this is going to cheer you up. I'll try my hardest. <laughs> As Angus said, my starting point for this discussion is a contemporary form of determinism, infant determinism. 
Um, and my interest in that is given by um, the efforts I'm making together with colleagues to um, develop a new analysis of parenting culture. I'm sure plenty of people in this room know what I mean when I say infant determinism, but just in case, here's Polly Toynbee describing this outlook yesterday in an article she wrote in The Guardian. Research has for decades kept proving that, by the age of three, a child's destiny is all but sealed by how much affection, conversation, reading and explaining they have received. Recent research from the University of Pennsylvania scanned children's brains over 20 years and found cognitive stimulation by the age of four was the key factor in developing the cortex, predicting cognitive ability 15 years later. That shows how brief is the window of opportunity for changing lives. Anybody who was at uh, some of the discussions in the After the Riot strand yesterday um, or indeed just generally keeps up to date on discussions that happen around children and parents, I'm sure, will be very familiar um, with this type of narrative and type of account, um, basically saying um, that what happens uh, to us in the very early years of life is determinate um, and fixes everything else. Um, and I would be very interested to know um, what Daniel um, thinks about this, seeing as how it's consistently argued that neuroscience has proved to us um, that this is the case. Um, I'm very interested in other people's uh, views on all of this. It's an outlook um, that's really now consensual um, across the political spectrum, so it crosses anything that we would call a left-right divide. Um, and really the only argument now um, for policymakers is exactly how you intervene early um, rather than whether you should. Um, and a clear consensus um, that something needs to be done to change the way parents bring up their children um, on the basis of this type of argument. Um, and I'm interested in it because of the effect it's having for parent-child relations, but also because it's of, of its effect for the wider um, ways in which we think about relationships between adults and children. What I wanted to do in the brief time I've got now, though, um, is to come at things a little bit of a different way, because one of the things I've been trying to do over the last year, um, actually invited to do this by Angus, so it's his fault if this doesn't work, um, is to look at this um, in a bit more of a historical perspective um, by doing a bit of research about the 19th century um, and looking at the form of uh, determinism that emerged in uh, that century um, to try and then compare that um, with where we are now. So I'm going to uh, make a few brief points um, about that comparison. Um, first of all, though, I think it is important to note the, the comment that Angus made at the beginning, um, that formulations of where the balance lies um, between what is in our own hands and what is determined for us go back a very, very long way. Um, so most certainly to the ancients and the debates around um, things being in the hands of the gods, um, although fortune favours the brave. Um, so if we're brave, we can um, expect fortune to look kindly on us. Um, the archetypal debates, as I understand it, did emerge in the 17th and 18th century. Um, at that point, um, the assertion of clearly the idea of the freedom of the will um, set against the argument that God makes us what we are um, was um, a phenomenally um, important debate, an important set of discussions um, at that point in time. And I think if we take the long view, um, we can see a whole set of insights and important issues to discuss. Um, I'm no expert on the 17th or 18th century, but the one thing that I do know, um, if you look at the richness of discussion that emerged in those centuries, um, it certainly makes the kind of thing that Daniel was describing with these little experiments peering inside somebody's brain and saying, oh, look, there's free will. No, look, there isn't free will. Um, seem to me extremely trivial 
um, and very um, superficial um, in terms of their um, attempt to get to grips with what it is we're trying to understand here about humanity in general um, and its history. When we do move to look at the 19th century, I think what essentially we find um, is the emergence in one way um, of a secularised version um, of the 17th and 18th century case um, for God. However, it is a form of determinism that rejects God, um, but at the same time holds on to the idea um, that there is no such thing as free will, that it is indeed an illusion. Um, so the argument that I'm talking about that emerges in the 19th century is broadly speaking called social determinism or social Darwinism, which essentially argues that the history of humanity can be understood um, as a history which we understand through inquiries into evolution, the evolution of the species, um, and we can re read that through to understand everything um, about the human being and humanity. Um, and we find, if we do that, um, that there is indeed no such thing as free will. And that was the argument that emerged and became very, very widespread um, and very um, popular, uh, dominant amongst the intellectual classes um, in the 19th century. And I think it's easy when you, to think when you read about social Darwinism, particularly its emphasis on evolution and the significance of evolution um, and the idea that science can tell us everything about who we are and what we are, to imagine that in certain ways what's going on today is just a rerunning and a reformulation um, of social Darwinist uh, precepts. But I think that would be wrong. Um, and what I want to suggest is that there are, very briefly, um, three points of difference, I'm probably going to get time to say one of them, um, between um, 19th century determinism and now. So I guess the main point that I wanted to make, and I'll try and come back to some of them in, in the discussion, is that when you look at determinism in the 19th century, it was very deterministic, but there was a still a sense argued very strongly um, that things were working with us, not against us. So that the forces that were behind us are ones that would drive us forward together to a better place. And I think you find that if you think about Adam Smith, for example, who I would very much characterise as a determinist thinker. But his argument about the hidden hand of the market was that it would drive us all forward um, to a better society about which we could be very optimistic. The uh, person I spent most time um, researching is Herbert Spencer, um, who was definitively a determinist, definitively viewed free will as an illusion. Um, but as one um, person writing about him has noted, Spencer pictured human history as one long perfect process of mankind's adaptation to the requisites of a perfect social life. I think compared to that, if we look at contemporary determinism, I would say it functions quite differently, essentially as a set of warnings um, which seeks not to say to us we're all moving together to a better place, but in fact to say to us, if we carry on what we're doing, if we don't recognise the limitations of what we are and who we are, um, then we're really um, going to end up in a very bad place. And in a sense, what emerges out of that, I think, is really um, an attempt to exert authority over people and to control the behaviour of individuals um, on the grounds that um, that is the only way um, in which we can hold things together. And essentially, I think that's what emerges from the type of determinism that, that Neil is arguing for. And I also think it's what emerges from a lot of contemporary narratives about neuroscience, um, that you know, we need to tell parents what to do when they're bringing up their kids. We need to tell people to do less shopping. Um, that's what we, we know. Um, so we have to constrain our will. Sorry, it's thanks. lovely that the sentence about being able to choose what you do is accompanied by the red card, <laughs> controlling behaviour. But I didn't do that. <laughs> Thank you, Ellie.
Um, so, Joe, I, I think the fate of free will is in your hands, then. Okay. It's three against one. It doesn't matter. So since uh, we're at the Barbican Theatre and Art Centre, I thought I'd use Shakespeare to illustrate the two sides of the debate. Right. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for the sport. Gloucester tells King Lear after his eyes have been pulled out. If there was any truth in Gloucester's words, then the possibility of human freedom would be undermined. It would also be undermined if the idea of an evil god were to be replaced by the idea that all human beings are subject to fate and that any effort to alter or change the future is futile. For freedom is best seen as our ability to make things happen, a power we possess as rational beings to determine whether a given event occurs or whether it does not. Gloucester obviously does not think that we have that ability. Free actions are not the result of randomness or chance. They follow deliberation and are guided by reason. To avoid being red-guarded by the chairman, for example, I try to stick to the time limit. If I don't succeed, that wouldn't show that I wasn't free or that I couldn't have done better, that it had to happen or that it somehow had to happen, that it was fated to happen or that I could have done nothing to prevent it. More generally, although I cannot do anything now to change what happened in the past, it doesn't follow that I could have done nothing before it happened to stop it from happening, nor does it follow that my deliberations and decisions can make no difference to the future course of events. The fact that human beings are free to decide and then having decided can still change their mind explains why we can never predict human actions with the same degree of accuracy that we predict the sun's rising tomorrow or the exact date and time of the next lunar eclipse. Knowing a person well allows us to make informed and pretty safe guesses about he or she is likely to act, but there are no psychological laws that determine what he or she will do no matter what. What distinguishes us from mere puppets or automata is our ability to control both ourselves and our destinies. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings, Cassius tells his dithering friend as he puts pressure on him to join the conspiracy, expressing a thought that contradicts Gloucester's flies to wanton God, boys. Sorry. Our ability to control both ourselves and our destinies, however, is not absolute, unlimited or unconditional. They are what Bernard Williams calls degrees of freedom. And we are all familiar with cases of behavior control, brainwashing, insanity, addiction, severe depression, brain tumors, torture, hypnosis, and a whole range of pathological conditions where the agent is deprived of the ability to act freely. Obstacles to freedom may be external or internal. Being made to do something at gunpoint would be a good example of the former. Kleptomania, where the individual appears to act according to compulsive desires, would illustrate the latter. A lack of freedom involves lack of responsibility. Still, it would be absurd to move from the principle that people should not be held responsible in cases where they could not do otherwise than they have done 
to the conclusion that no one should ever be held responsible for anything. The difficulty here is one of distinguishing between an irresistible impulse and one that is merely not resisted. There are cases where the impulse is so strong that the person cannot resist it, for which the person is supposedly not responsible. These are to be, to be distinguished from cases showing a deficiency of strength of will, uh, for which the person would presumably be responsible. In the first kind of case, we cannot tell the person, you shouldn't have done that, because he or she literally could not resist doing it. In the second case, we can. And I think this distinction is in itself an argument in favor of our basic freedom. To treat others as free agents responsible for their actions is to acknowledge their status as moral beings motivated by reasons and capable of reflecting on their beliefs and desires. If this capacity is destroyed or damaged on account of the conditions just mentioned, the person may become insensitive to reasons and start acting in irrational and unpredictable ways. But if the ability is still in place, people may try to change their ways and succeed in doing so, even if not without some difficulty. Education and the law leave room for this possibility. Used as a deterrent, punishment operates on the assumption that people can be made to understand that crime does not pay. Aimed at rehabilitation, it requires the ability on the part of free agents to become better persons and avoid future mistakes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joe. <laughs> okay, we've got rather a lot to get through. Um, I think a very different perspectives on this. Um, so I'm just going to throw out a few things, but feel free by any means to come back uh, on each other through this. But um, Neil, just to draw out a bit of your argument, actually where you started in terms of our ability to make history. Presumably, I mean, I just want you to clarify this. Presumably we haven't always lived in the same consumer society. There has been uh, historical progress. You're not making a, a historical argument that we've always been uh, in a Googleplex or subject mm. to advertising. Mm. Um, so does that mean that you're just saying, I'm down on free will in today's historical circumstances? It used to be, uh, there used to be more of it around, and there might be more of it in the future, or have we reached a, an historical dead end? The Amish are completely free, therefore. Um, no, I mean, the, the consumer society, or the, or the one in which you could define our society as one driven by consumerism, is uh, the last 30, 40 years. It, we've always consumed, we always will do. But is it the singular way in which, or the most important way, the, the, the priority way in which society reproduces itself? Yes. Um, before the society of the consumer, it was the society of the producer. We knew each other and ourselves by what we did, by the work we did. Um, uh, and that created, you know, that was part of the creation of, you know, uh, in a sense, um, uh, the, the possibility, you know, the political possibility of alternative societies because, yeah, the, the, as Marx said, the, the producer society had the, the germ within it of, a, of an alternative. And my argument is that within a consumer society, there is no German of, of an alternative. You know, both uh, uh, psychologically, we're all driven by the same desires. You know, it, you know if there's such thing as a seven-blade razor, you know, why would you settle for a five-blade razor? You'd be mad to. 
You know, so we're on that kind of, you know, we're on that treadmill. We can all be, as the advert said, ashamed of our mobile. <coughs> so we're on that psychological, emotional treadmill, and where there is no sight of an alternative because everything and everyone is co-opted or used to police the system. So it's difficult to see where the alternative is going to come from. And that's bleak. I understand that is incredibly bleak, but I don't see any reason why you wouldn't, you know, start from the reality as you see it. Okay, but the question I'm just trying to draw out is <clears throat> bleak, but how bleak? I mean, is this no exit? I don't or, know. But no. if, if, if you allow even a glimmer of a possibility of an exit, of course, you're of, allowing a bit no, of... No, no, of course, of course. From, from, the, you know, from the ashes of everything, from everyone's failure and disappointment and humiliation, it sparks some alternative, some different way of thinking and being. But can, how, can, you know, how can that take a grip in a world you know, in which we can imagine the end of the planet but not the end of consumer capitalism? That's the world that we live in. You know, so where does the alternative come from within that scenario? We know that we are wrecking the world, but we carry on doing the same thing, knowing that that's going to be the result because of the grip of this thing. Now, of course, in the cracks, in the margins, alternatives start and begin and can build up. But I don't see how that's beginning to happen yet on any kind of systematic basis, which can challenge the predominant way of, of and direction of our society. Ellie, do you want to come back on any of that? I mean, it could be even worse because before you see your first advert in the cradle, uh, you, you've been nailed, according to Polly, anyway. Well, that's yes, that's that is what's what's argued, and I suppose this is what the, the thing that I think is so specific about contemporary determinism um, compared to the way it's been articulated um, in times previously is this overwhelming sense that. Um, Human knowledge, so the more we know, and things that we do, um, so making adverts um, or generating advertising industry, as we do these things, what they emerge as is these phenomenal forces standing up against us, and in the face of them, all we can understand is how weak, how useless, um, how pathetic we are, how terrible our behaviour is, um, and attempt to come to terms with it. Um, and it's a phenomenally fatalistic sense of things and I think in that sense it is even I mean I'm not saying social Darwinism is good <laughs> determinism and this is bad determinism um, but it's certainly very very different because there's um, really a loss in contemporary determinism of any sense of uh, things that human beings do things that human beings find out being a way of moving us forward to somewhere better and I mean, I think it's kind of... One way of thinking about it is that it expresses to me a kind of really um, heightened sense of alienation from ourselves. So even things that we come to know or that we can learn from them um, is that we need some new rules to stop us doing the things that we're doing at the moment. And that's really the way it seems to work in the area I'm most familiar with to do with children and parents. So the more we know about children, the more we realise just how much we're screwing them up and we need a whole load of other sets of rules and regulations. I mean, even going right back into pregnancy now, you talk to people who are, you know, having babies at the moment about some of the things that go on in the maternity services and the level of scrutiny and oversight of pregnant women's behaviour and the way the whole thing's starting to operate. That seems to be the only lesson that we seem to be able to learn now from knowledge is that we need to constrain choice and constrain human activity. And I think that's essentially what's being said by Neil as well. And I okay. think that's the, the, the big casualty of all of this is choice. 
that's you know what's utterly being utterly expunged from the picture. Very quickly, because I want to bring Daniel in. I mean, I'm arguing for completely the opposite. That I want real choice. I want real alternatives. I don't want this treadmill. I want us collectively to decide and determine what kind of lives we want to lead and what kind of society we want to live in. I just see a, a monoculture. That's all I see. I want to kind of smash all of that kind of you know pseudo choice and pseudo freedom and provide a space in which we determine ourselves collectively. Through through discussion, through democracy, through participation, we create a wonderfully, you know, a, a complex, different, differentiated, pluralistic world, and not just this monoculture, one track, one world, one way of being. Okay, but now I'm thoroughly confused because, you know, if that's what you want, that that necessitates um, you accepting free will. Uh, of, of course. Okay. Of course. Okay. So, uh, Daniel. Good. Um, your argument, I think, was a sort of weak neuroscientist, if not a full-scale reductionist account which says the mind, the brain is simply a machine and that you can oil it and tune it but there's no meaning, no human meaning inside. You're making a weaker argument, if I got you right, which is that there might be free will but it might not be conscious mm-hmm. uh, uh, free will and that we may freely choose but not be aware of our reasons mm-hmm. um, and that if you tell people that there's an alternative, they embrace it. So, are you also arguing for free will? Well, I'm arguing that the, its, its utility is simply in terms of how it changes behaviour. Right? I mean, I, I think what's, what's interesting about it is you know, how it influences how people act. I mean, I suppose the first experiment I was trying to loosen this phrase, the common sense still gives, us a, gives strong support to the idea that we have free will. But I, I, want to, you know, I want to make it clear that I'm not suggesting, you know, as Ellie you know, wondered, that, that as we learn more and more about the brain there's less and less room for individuals to choose how they are. And, and, and part of the way that that might be happening is that we sort of gather evidence about how the brain works that allows us to prescribe more and more closely how people ought to act in order to optimise themselves. I think this critical periods argument is quite interesting. And I for me just briefly to, to kind of to, to, to say where it comes from, but then to sort of loosen the, perhaps its grip on how we decide on behaviour. I mean, the literature around critical periods, so this notion that there are bits of infancy which are really important and other bits which are less important comes from from the animal literature famous experiments with uh, uh, kittens uh, suturing their eyes closing their eyes if a kitten uh, doesn't Who get would do that well i can i can name names and, and it's in the literature Dreadful. it's taught us the most extraordinary things um uh, and, and although they are painful experiments uh, to do at least for the experimenter um, uh, and certainly um, perhaps also for the animal but the but they teach us a lot about um, the periods in which people uh, can can uh, change their brains. So if, if a kitten's eyes are uh, one eye is closed uh, during a, a particular critical period of its uh, life, between and I'm going to give you arbitrary numbers here, weeks three and five after birth. It may not be those numbers, right? But there is a particular bit. If you close the eyes before three weeks or after five weeks, it doesn't make any difference. But if you have one eye closed between three and five weeks, the kitten will never learn to see through that eye. It will be effectively blind through its eye. And the reason is because that's the period of the kitten's development where the connections from the eyes to the brain are being pinned down, and that's as part of a pre-programmed developmental trajectory. And if there is no input at that point, the connections never form. Okay, So there are bits of uh, um, development where environment makes a really big difference to biology. But if we know anything about biology, it's that it will always find a workaround to the system. So people function perfectly well with the most extraordinary differences in the biology of their brains. And in fact, the more we learn about how the brain works, the clearer we have to be 
that the way it's built doesn't determine the way we can use it. So I think that the richness of, of, of brain imaging and brain science should lead us to understand that we can be much more than the determinants uh, that, that condition our biology. Um, and, and we shouldn't get, in my view, too hung up about critical periods and dependencies of that sort, as if they could tell us how the adult brain is going to act in all kinds of situations. Okay, okay. and um, Joe, you gave, I suppose, the classic liberal account of, um, I suppose, the necessity of freedom in our moral autonomy yeah. so, um, and our capacity for self-government, and your examples are our capacity to regret, to wish it could have been otherwise, uh, to be held accountable before the law for our actions, and we can judge that you know you did not have to do that, and so on. What do you think the contemporary challenges are to that account? Because the one thing we haven't mentioned, and I just, I'm sort of using you to throw this in, is government intervention uh, in uh, our lives today. Neil's talked about consumer intervention, but the, the state increasingly wants to have a role uh, which could be argued to infringe on our capacity uh, for self-government. Right. I don't think that that's an argument against free will, though. I mean, when you say... No, 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 but a challenge to the... Yeah, when you say that the state is intervening all the time and a kind of big brother attitude towards what we do, and then at the same time you say, I'd like things not to be like that, and you'd you'd also continue that, follow that up by saying that I'm going to work very hard and campaign so that that doesn't happen any longer then you're, of course, acknowledging in saying that, that you are free to do that. So that's the first thing. I think the greatest challenge nowadays comes from neuroscience, from bad neuroscience, I must say. That is, I think I would find myself almost in agreement, almost in agreement with what Daniel was saying before. So there doesn't seem to be to be a clash between what we get to know the further knowledge we gain about the brain and how it works and the fact that we want to assert our freedom. I'd like to make just one point, though. Uh, The brain is not the person, and that's something which I think we need to keep in mind if we're taking an attitude towards free will which allows us the kind of freedom that we need in order to operate successfully politically, socially, in education, and so on in the world. So when we're talking about the brain and how it works, we're very often talking about an analysis of something at the sub-personal level. And when we're talking about the person, we're talking about something else. We're talking about beliefs, desires, aspirations, hopes, fears, and so on. And I think it would be a mistake to reduce the, third, the second level of discourse, that is when we talk about ourselves as free agents with reasons, beliefs, desires, and so on, to the first kind of discourse, that is to the uh, neurological or physical kind of discourse. I think the two things can go together and there doesn't need to be any clash between them. Okay. Uh, you want to say something quickly and then I'm just going to go out, so get ready with questions. Just really quickly, so we've got some complete polarisation. Um, I actually think that what I think I think is that neuroscience is completely irrelevant to this discussion um, and to any way of understanding what free will is or what we might mean by it. Um, because I don't think it's something that you find in the brain of the individual. Um, I think actually that's a highly individuated and um, thin, paltry version of what it is we're trying to talk about. Um, I think if we want to understand what free will is, you get much more through looking at 18th century debates. It's an idea and it's an aspiration. It's not a thing you can see on a scan. Um, Yeah, I... I 
Actually, I'd like to disagree with that. Uh, I've got two points, but first I'd like to disagree with that last point. Um, I was uh, slightly surprised that there was only one scientist on this panel ab um, about free will because I, th I think that a lot of the... The new, the new research being done in this is coming from the fields, well, of neuroscience, psychology, and even things like artificial intelligence, because these are the fields that are really unpacking what and deconstructing what consciousness is, and therefore how free will or not might might fit into that. So, would the panel like to comment on that? And also, Neil, you used the word totalitarianism. I think this is a very, very loaded word, and I think. To me, totalitarianism implies um, the secret police and people losing their free will by getting their families taken out and shot rather than Christmas shopping on Oxford Street. So, I'd also like to pick up on what Neil said. Um, I think it shows how a contemporary determinism becomes convenient uh, as a cop-out for not examining why um, particular political ideas aren't um, having a purchase. And then I'd also like to pick up on Daniel's um, description, the first experiment he described. Isn't it the case that anyone in this room put in a room and asked just to push a button would be extremely bored? <laughs> and doesn't that mean that the design of the experiment, as I agree with Ellie, is superficial on what humans uh, are like? So, for instance, if I was put in a room and asked to push a button, all sorts of other things would impinge on my concentration. And it, it doesn't mean that we should then let go of consciousness because of that. Yeah, I've, I've got, got a couple of points, really. I mean, one is that I wished I'd drunk in moderation last night, and, uh, but it did actually take an effort of will to get here this morning. Um, so I think that was me exercising my free will. Um, probably when I was drinking as well, but that the, um, I just think is, a lot of this seems to be about the way that science is interpreted, and I actually think, you know, an experiment can be interpreted in different ways, and, and that's actually the politics of today and the, and the way that human beings, is quite a degraded notion of human beings that, that we have today, influences the way we interpret those sorts of experiments. I think that the Libet one, to me, I mean, I've, I've heard about it many times, and, and I think it's quite a ludicrous one in, in terms of thinking about free will, because when I think about free, free will, I think about choices that are made over decades or, or years or, you know, over long periods of time based on lots of ref reflection, based on rationality. This is actually when you exercise a free will, when we make sort of life choices, not when we decide to press a button or you know, do, do something arbitrary or momentary. So, so I don't think it really tells us very much. And with the, uh, okay, the early experiences stuff as well, sorry, can I... Quickly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it has a bearing, but actually one of the things about adulthood is actually transcending our experiences and making choices about what sort of being we want to be. And again, I think that's been lost in today's um, degraded view of humanity. Thanks. Uh, I'd also, I guess, like to express my surprise that there's less of a representation from science on the panel. I think at least two people on the panel have 
very little idea about the argument at all, actually. It goes back very much further than two or three hundred years ago. It goes back two thousand years beyond that to Democritus and Eusippus. It's grounded actually in physics long before it's grounded in neuroscience. To dismiss neuroscience as irrelevant to the question is to understand almost nothing about the question. And Joe, I'd like to illustrate uh, just why it's so relevant to the defense of free will that you mounted, saying that someone who fails to inhibit an action is morally responsible for it. Um, We know that actually the amount of glucose in your prefrontal cortex has a major bearing on whether you're able to resist impulses, uh, impulses of anger, impulses of indulgence, and so on. It can literally be the manufacturer that manufactured the diet uh, Coke that you consumed. The amount of glucose or NutraSweet that they decided to add will determine your failure to inhibit your will or not. And so to say we're morally responsible for decisions taken many, many causal steps down the line, uh, like I said, just strikes me as extremely naive. Just a quick point. First, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you neuroscientific experiments have absolutely no purchase on the metaphysical question of whether or not we have free will for some of the issues that have already been uh, aired. And I, as Ellie knows, I've written about that at length. And the Libet experiments do not, as I say, provide any kind of input either side of the free will argument. Neurodeterminism adds nothing to the arguments for or against determinism, period. But I want to focus on uh, Neil's um, address. He used the word we throughout, and I want to know, how does he know so much about me and everyone else in this room? All I can say is he's got me dead wrong, and I'm the only person I think I, I have authority on in this room. And I would suggest that the things that preoccupy and engage me are not whether or not I'm ashamed, whether I've upgraded my mobile phone. Now, I may be odd in that sense. And it seems to me I'm worried where on earth he gets his, as it were, totalitarian view in which he can encompass the whole of, of, of society, millions of people, in one withering glance. And I suspect it's because he's taking a crowd-level view of people, a statistical-level view of people. He looks at them objectively. If you then zoom in on individuals, you will find that they actually are quite different from what he can even begin to imagine through the pebble lenses of his very few and very simplifying ideas about current humanity, which are, in fact, are very degrading and contemptuous <laughs> of his fellow men. Right, so that's a disagreement, right. I really like what um, Ellie said about um, free will being an aspiration in previous centuries, and I think it it seems still very much to be an aspiration because the more people seem to study it, the murkier and more ambivalent the whole whole thing seems. I just wanted to know what what the panel would uh, think that free will actually would look like if we had it. And how would we exercise it? I'm just surprised that nobody's talked, talked more about the influences on free will of things like diet and stress and cultural environment. I mean, I want to pick up on Ellie Lee's points because the article she uses is a rather bad article on some very complex research, which doesn't actually say we're fixed at three, but does say that there are issues that enter at three, that we carry the stresses with us from a very early age. But that does not necessarily mean that it's pessimistic. The whole point of social science since the 1890s has been to try and intervene about that. That's what antenatal care is about changing the people's possible futures. And just to comment on the comment about sugar, yes, I get very 
bad-tempered and lose impulse control about lunchtime. <laughs> okay, um, let's start with you, Neil. Um, there are loads of questions. Uh, totalitarianism, is this just too much pessimism? Um, have we had too much sugar, etc.? cetera? Uh, you don't have to answer all any of these, but about a minute, and then we'll go out because there are loads of fans. Yeah, I kind of, um, I, I kind of guessed this would happen, and I was going to start with my earlier, my introductory comments by saying that you're going to hate me because I'm obviously coming to the Institute of Ideas and telling people that they're thick and they're stupid and they're donkeys led by carrots doesn't go down very well. I, do, I did kind of understand that, and I thought maybe I'll just lead in with that and get it out of the way and get, and get it done. Look, I, did, I was quite clear that I said that I think people are, are wonderfully brilliantly inventive, creative, individual, etc. I'm just looking at the patterns of what's happening in our lives, in our society, in our economy, in our culture, etc. Where are these things taking us? You know, of course, if you go down to the macro, you know, the, mi- the micro level, people make, you know, do different things and behave in different ways and express themselves and whatever. But where's the big trend taking us? You know, the consumerization of our world seems to me which is completely obvious. You know, whether that's, you know, uh, you know, in the high street, the stretch of the high street, you know, about, you know the one, one of the ones that gets me is baby gap. You know, baby gap. You know, we have to, like, you know, identify even infants now in consumer outfits. And it just goes on throughout our lives, it seems to me. Someone talked about the state. Well, the state's role is now the market state. The state's role is to ensure that consumer capitalism continues because that's the only way that our, system, uh, our, our economy is deemed to be out of function, um, that you privatise the things that were formerly owned in, in public. It seems to me this is going on... It seems undeniable to me that this is going on in every place, in everywhere. So to deny it, I don't... You know, that doesn't say that we are not kind of, you know, clever, you know, free-will people, but there's something, a pressure on us, a force on us which is kind of deflecting us in a way that takes us all in the same direction. I'm interested in what that is. And that is total... I'm, I'm sorry you don't like the term, but that is, if there is no alternative for the way that your society is going, if there is only one way to be, that is totalitarian. That is the definition of it. It's a different form of totalitarianism, as I tried to describe, than the jackboot Nazi uh, Stalinist form. It's one led by, by seduction... But if there is only one way for our society to develop, and it isn't just in Britain, it's across the world, every developing country is moving in the same direction, then why don't we, why don't we talk about that and look at it and see it as, as it is and not as we want it to be? Okay, Joe, Joe, anything you want to come back on? Yeah, okay. No, I don't think that anybody who wants to defend free will is then bound to say that we are not influenced by what we read and hear and listen to and... I don't think that anybody wanting to defend free will seriously would say that. We are influenced by that all the time. But still, the basic idea is that we are free to decide what to read, where to go, what to buy, whether to drink this or that. That's the important thing. And I think that that's part of our ordinary common sense, part of what we say when when we talk about ourselves. The gentleman in front here said, I mean, had I drunk less alcohol yesterday, I would probably be in a better position to make a good point this morning. So that shows, so that, shows that he, he is conscious, aware, deeply aware that he could have done it had he wanted to. The point about... <laughs> um, I think that we need to make this clear distinction between causes, and there are obviously causes that are influencing us in so many different ways, 
But then there's a kind of cause, there's a compelling cause, that is that doesn't allow us to choose freely. And there's a many of the reasons why I mentioned a whole list of phobias, uh, mental diseases, conditions which make it impossible for the person to choose. Kleptomania is one of the examples I gave, but you can give so many others. But I think those are exceptions that prove the rule. Daniel. Well, I mean, a couple of things about neuroscience and what it might or might not be saying. I mean, there is a position within philosophy of mind called eliminativism. And what eliminativism says is that this sort of belief-desire talk, you know, I reached for the water because I wanted to drink and, and, and desired the, the, the coolness feeling as it went down my throat and so on, that, that's um, a way we understand ourselves. The eliminativists believe that as neuroscience develops, we will find accounts of human action uh, which don't depend on these uh, psychological constructs. So we'll be able to account for my reaching for the water solely in terms of the action in my premotor cortex and a thirst center uh, deep in my hypothalamus. And I think not many people believe that that's the case. In other words, the interpretation of action is always going to need culture. The, you know, the, the Talleyrand, the famous uh, French diplomat when he died, uh, it was at Metternich, and there's a lot of dispute about who said what. Metternich said, I wonder what he meant by that. Right when Talleyrand died, the sense of, of what our actions mean is not something that we can choose because the, you know the construction of them, what it is we're doing, is something which is personally and socially contested. I do think neuroscience has a role, and we can talk about it more later in the discussion. But on the on the Libet experiment, you know, again, what it helps us to do is to loosen the sense that we know what's going on inside our heads, and and the sense that that we feel we're choosing is a blind alley. Right? I mean, it just doesn't tell us anything. The the the, the experiment about sitting in a room being bored and pressing a button, all that shows is that sometimes when you think you're choosing, you're not. And what that shows you is that this illusion of free will, the subjective sense that you know what you're doing, is, is not a firm support for the notion that we're free. We just have to let that go. Just to Ray, I mean, yeah, uh, I, I'm afraid he's joke last time I was here, but, you know, I think Ray's the last person I would trust to know what's going on inside his head, right? I mean, you don't have to be a... Beha the behaviorist joke, I don't think about having sex with Ray all that often, but the joke of the, the behaviorists, right, the two behaviorists in bed and one says to the other, that was great for you, how was it for me, right? I mean, you know, right? Yeah? So, you, you, you know, this, the, the sense of introspection, the sense that you know yourself, is another blind alley. So subjective sense of choice and knowing yourself, and I know what I do and I know I do things, also blind alley, but that doesn't mean that neuroscience can tell us everything about what we're going to do. Joe, very quickly, I wanted to say something. Yes, uh, I mean, just to connect with what Daniel was saying, Paul Churchland, for example, who is uh, one of these eliminative materialists he was talking about, envisages a future scenario where people observe not the sky reddening at sunset, but as he puts it, and I quote, the wavelength distribution of incoming solar mediation radiation shift towards the longer wavelengths. Now, that's the kind of mistake people make when they think that they can replace our ordinary psychological concepts with the vocabulary of physics. And I think the same thing can also be said about wanting to replace free will with talk about central fiber stimulations, right. neurons firing. The, 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 the fact no, that that's no, misguided no, no, doesn't, no, no. Mean, doesn't mean that there's nothing Stop. to be contributed from neuroscience to the debate. No, no, the, the, the audience get it saying this too. So, Ellie, 30 seconds. The idea that I'm interested is in freedom, um, and I'm interested in choice. Um, and from that point of view, if you're interested in those ideas or those concepts, um, then things look a little bit different. So, for example, I don't go along with the way that people um, want to make free will and consciousness 
um, basically the same thing as if that's what we're discussing. It's mm. just sort of, you know, the sense that's around in some individual's mind. When I say I think it's an aspiration, what I'm interested in is looking at how at certain points in time um, human beings have come up with a set of ideas through which they say we are going to press the case for ourselves against our circumstances and take matters into our own hands. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah. And I'm interested in the evolution of that idea and the forms it takes at different points in time. And all I'm saying about now is that that idea seems to be phenomenally weak. Yeah. There is very few people making the case for freedom um, and choice. And okay. we have the institutionalisation of anti-choice policies stop. all over the place. Stop. Stop. Maternity services being yeah. a clear example. We've got it. Uh, it's just for Daniel, really. I think you're grossly uh, over-interpreting the results of those experiments because, um, you know, and you've told us what those experiments mean now, so what w how would you interpret it if I just refused to cooperate in those experiments? I you know, if I just took... I'd know myself. if you were going to do it before you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I think that sort of counterposing determinism to free will is a bit of a mistake, and I'd also take issue with Ellie's distinction between consciousness and free will. I do think that they are inseparable because everything, every physical object in the universe is determined, and so we as physical beings are. The question becomes, where does free will squeeze within that? And I think that there is a distinction that has to be made between free will and freedom because free will is the ability to make choices, to do other than what we are doing. And so in that sense, there is an interiority, um, a subjectivity to human beings, which is inescapable, it's what we are. And therefore, the, the, the point about free will is that, that making of a choice, including the rejection of choices on offer, freedom is the range of choices that are on offer. Okay. And you can, no. as part of free will, reject the society that offers a limited range of choices. No, no, no. Clearly made. What the um, discussion tells us is that it's a lot easier to describe unfreedom than it is to describe freedom. And that's obviously true, because to describe or define freedom would be to deny freedom. Uh, if you could set out in ahead of time what it was, then it would cease to be freedom because you would have defined and described it and, and set the limits upon it. And we have uh, classic examples, the, the two strongest descriptions of unfreedom in our contemporary world. One is uh, neuroscience and the other is uh, a, a kind of a Marxist uh, description of unfreedom. And they're both compelling. But what they both tell us is that we are free because it's not possible to describe unfreedom unless you step outside of unfreedom. To describe the absence of freedom uh, is already to step outside of it and put yourself outside of this cape, the state of unfreedom and begin to criticise uh, and understand what it is not to be free. And you couldn't do that if you weren't coming from the standpoint of somebody yep. who wished to give life uh, uh, to your freedom. I guess there's a very, uh, always a weird paradox in these discussions about uh, matter, you know, physical matter and mind. I mean, obviously, before human beings had the idea, uh, invented the idea of free will, uh, they still had brains inside their skulls. Um, before neuroscience came along to find out how all the things were wired together, uh, people were still thinking, being conscious, and coming up with different ideas about what they meant to be. So similarly, although we are all made up of dead matter, what's interesting about human beings is we're dead matter configured in a way which isn't dead, does something very different to all other matter. Um, so it, it, there's always this, I always find there's this sort of like tedious dead end with, with the neuroscience uh, 
assertion that you know that we are determined by how we do it because basically we we already we have already always been like this yeah. and we're just discovering the way in which the wires are put together well okay. actually Quick, the fact no, is that no, the, you know stop. just to finish hang on <laughs> free will in other words is of course an effect of the brain well i have a question to neil um, what is um, wrong with consumer conformism um, me wearing a blue um, shirt today um, so, um, I choose this because I thought, okay, there will be other guys, they will, have, they will be more blue skirts around, shirts around, so they will think I'm one of them, they will like me, they will listen to my words. If I would have decided with free will to um, appear <laughs> naked here, you would look at me and um, wouldn't um, take me for serious looking at my um, impressing naked body. So, I do. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with that? I think in any discussion, it's really important just to become aware of some of the assumptions that are, 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 are being made. And um, a lot of the ideas that are being beautifully shared are really based on the assumptions that we're making about ourselves and our identities. And more and more, particularly in the world of physics, but in all kinds of um, fields of inquiry, we're actually now seeing the universe as an intelligent network. And so all of the questions about whether we as individuals have free choice or whether it's determined are based on all kinds of assumptions about our identity and about our um, consciousness and about our mind. And without fundamentally challenging those assumptions, these kinds of discussions of just going backwards and forwards will just continue on. And to really become aware of those assumptions is, is key. Um, there are two debates going on here. One is about the range of free choices open to human beings, increasing or decreasing. And I applaud the, that side of the table that has raised these issues. Great cause for optimism. The other is the classical debate over free will, which rests on a belief in causation. I'd like to address my question to our neuroscientists and our philosopher. Um, does a belief in causation, cause and effect, imply a belief in determinacy? And in light of that... If the answer to that is broadly yes, then is there any such thing as any kind of free agent as a concept, never mind a human being, but could there be any agent conceivable who would satisfy all the requirements of freedom that the philosopher and the scientist uh, need to meet in order to make this a real debate and not a pseudo-problem? Okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, this follows on partly... I mean, nobody would deny, as Joe Frigeri said, that there are influences on our action. You know, we act for reasons. Those reasons arise because of things we notice in our environment, reasons we are given, uh, our impulses and desires. We'd also agree, I think, that if we didn't know certain options were open to us, we wouldn't take them. So you can say that people in the past didn't take certain social or political options because they didn't know that they never seriously thought they were available. But I do think that the philosophical way to look at this needs to be emphasized, and it goes back to the last point and the, the point about the 18th century. I mean, one of the great milestones in the debate, whether it's right or not, is that of David Hume, which is to say that essentially freedom is the ability to act or not act according to the determinations of the will. Now, whether um, causation, whether universal causal determinism is true is neither here nor there on that picture, because freedom is essentially the ability to do as you choose, and you might add, as you choose rationally, or some would anyway, regardless of the ways in which it came about that you wanted to choose in that way. Perfect. Stop. One sentence each. Right to left. Joe. We make 
a long sentence. We make meaningful contact with the world and with other people only at the personal level, and the best physics cannot dislodge our deep-seated views of ourselves as persons capable of deciding what we want to do and of freely choosing between possible alternatives. Well done. Daniel. I love the fact a philosopher comes with, this is not my sentence, comes with a lot of sentences he's written down. <laughs> can you, um, so look, you know, what, what does it mean to choose to be? Uh, I, I can't choose to play the violin, and I can't choose to be um, less headstrong in disciplining my children. I can construct situations which uh, tend me towards becoming better at all of those kinds of things. That it seems to me that the real choices we face about what we are in the world and what we become essentially an Aristotelian view. It comes through good habits and good environments. Now, the more we understand about the way that the environment affects our brains and the interaction between nature and nurture, between our biology and our environments, the better able we are to choose to find ourselves in situations which make ourselves better. But, but wanting, wanting to play the violin is kind of irre- irrelevant, whether that desire is free or otherwise. To play the violin, you've just got to practice. And that's true of most of the things we want to do to ourselves. There are two full stops in there. Ellie? Um, I agree with Piers. I could stop there if you want. OK. Neil? Um, there's nothing wrong with... Um, i use up Ellie's time. Um, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with consumer conformism. You know, it's the extent to which we conform is the issue. And have we crossed the line into a place in which the time, the slog, the effort to conform in all sorts of ways and our inability to conform or to make decisions in other places? You know, once upon a time there was a thing called the Agora where we met and we discussed and we decided. And what consumer capitalism does is, is just crush down those spaces where we have the ability to meet, to talk, to think about things and other than blue shirts. You know, we live in a world of you know, agoraphobia. You know, we don't like spaces in which we can be citizens. We only like spaces in which we can be okay. uh, consumers. And Keynes said, we'd, Keynes no. said we would have solved the economic <laughs> problem by now because he, th- he didn't think about consumer capitalism and the never-ending uh, treadmill of new wants and new stop. desires. Full, full, um, and he's full, enslaving full us. Full stop, full stop. Okay, um, Neil, uh, you seem to be a bit of a lefty, um, so I presume you like material production. Uh, Shouldn't the fact that we can consume all these things, at least in part, be celebrated? And do you celebrate China because it is advancing production and taking hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and becoming a dynamic, creative, free-choosing society, or at least potentially? They're certainly no. not, not... Well, he, he has got a point. They're not all wearing the same clothes anymore. Just here. Um, Ellie touched on it earlier, but I want to know from all of the panel, um, why, is it that they, why is it that people look back on their past actions and they reinterpret it in a light of a more fatalistic outlook? And just as an example of what I mean, in an interview with the former... Um, Argentinian guerrilla um, movement leader, he was asked whether, in retrospect, he would have uh, kidnapped and executed the ex-president of Argentina. And in retrospect, he said, well, we were products of our history. In other words, history made me do it. And that's what I want to ask the panel. Why is it that, at the time, he, well, he was doing what he was doing, he thought he was making history, and now, looking back on it, he thinks he was forced to do it by history. That's an excellent question. Another question to, to, to Neil, I'm afraid. Um, if there was an agora now, the approximation of an agora, it would probably be the Occupy movement. 
it's interesting that they probably make, they are probably the strongest proponents of the argument against material and personal freedom uh, in the current time. In other words, the consciousness that you are promoting is actually part of the problem. So how do you respond to that? Um, so there might be two ways you defend free will, and I'm wondering if you'd go for both or, or only one. And one would just be say it's morally necessary that we to, we, for, to have morals, we need to have free will. Or and this is more to Joe, uh, or the, there's something in the metaphysical constitution of the self that suggests that we have free will. And can you have both? Okay. Uh, well, Neil's whole argument seems to be based on a, a, a distinction between real and false choice which reminds me very much of the old left sort of distinction between bourgeois and socialist democracy. Um, one, is, one is real, one is false. Uh, it seems to me that uh, any democracy is better than no democracy. Any choice is better than no choice. Okay, Can uh, I make no, one? Leave, it, leave it there. Niels had lots of questions. Yeah, this is a question for Neil. Um, yesterday... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Six, um, yeah, stand up. Yesterday in uh, the Capitalism Kill or Cure talk, uh, there was a question raised from the audience about the limited scope of debate and how we were trying to fix the problem as opposed to coming up with new ideas and questioning the concept of the state or money. And it seems to me that as you enter, I mean, I'm not quite there, as you enter the world of work, you come into this habit and easy acceptance. Do you think it's the role of the future generation and the youth to challenge the world of conformity, or do you think it will come as a result of an organic change? Okay. Yeah. Um, sorry, again, it's for Neil again. I do apologise. Um, Neil, I understand where you're coming from. Uh, you seem to invoke uh, sort of the argument that comes from Neri Klein's book, uh, No Logo, which basically advocates the idea of the uh, explosive brand bombing. Um, the idea was when in America there was a guy who had a Pepsi T-shirt and uh, went to a school which was basically sponsored by Coke and was suspended. Um, it seems to be a very postmodernist perception that has uh, derailed choice, uh, per se, and you could argue that the argument itself is predicated on a periodizing um, of hope that is sort of transitory, um, which reduces it to co-option. Um, I'm just really asking you is to what extent can we say that uh, selling a, you know, a coffee uh, Starbucks and selling a culture in a cup, so to speak, uh, is saying that we have no choice. We as consumers have choice. Uh, it's just the very nature of which okay. it is systemized. Okay, leave it there. And um, lady in front of you there with the headscarf, and that'll be the last, the last one. Um, yeah, this is um, directed to Ellie. Um, your denial of neuroscience is quite mind-boggling, really, because neuroscience really gives you an insight to how, I don't know, why we have aspirations. So doesn't your ex- acceptance of neuroscience really support your idea or your, I don't know, your belief of, of, of having um, aspirations? Okay. <clears throat> Thank you all. It's pretty much cleared up now. Um, the, pan- the panel are going to wrap up with final thoughts. There are two things that I, uh, while they think of that kind of one long sentence each, the two things that I think are hanging out there. One is, um, to what extent are we nothing, i.e. not things? Yeah? So if we are happy to say we uh, embrace our nothingness, our not-thingness, um, then is there a room for freedom there? The second one is the um, Argentinian gorilla, I think. Uh, are there any ever any excuses? So, with those thoughts lingering, Daniel. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, there seems this strange complicity between uh, some slightly over-eager neuroscientists and some people with an agenda 
to either rule neuroscience as being the only thing that's going to tell us who we are or the thing that tells us nothing about who we are. It's quite clear that, that, what's, you know, that thinking is in our heads, but it's also quite clear that an account of thinking, you know, what thinking is about, uh, cannot arise solely from a neuroscientific perspective. I mean, just even a full description of the neurons and understanding everything about them won't tell us what thinking is, because thinking is about the world. So we're going to need collaboration between the political scientists, the philosophers, and the neuroscientists to make sense of any of this. I think the thought that we can read out heads then, you know, using imaging techniques or whatever, is probably, uh, you know, a disempowering idea, because it's a reductionist one. It reduces us uh, to what's in our heads. It seems to me that the more we understand about ourselves the more free we are to change. And, and my, my hope for neuroscience is that we can make ourselves better by understanding how our brains work and construct better situations for ourselves to be in so that we can you know, exceed the limits of what's currently biologically or physically possible. But I think this understanding of the head will help us in this quest for empowerment. Thank you, Daniel. Ellie? Um, all I can say is for my own part... Uh, what I found most uh, useful and most interesting in terms of trying to think about this issue is to try and understand more and understand better at what points and under what at what points in history and under what circumstances um, people start to make the argument that we can take matters into our own hands. When does that happen? Why does it happen? Um, and how do people make that case? And the reason why I'm interested in it is because I want to be in a situation where we take matters into our own hands. It's really as simple as that. Um, I'm a liberally-minded person. I believe in choice, and I think people should be as far as possible um, in a position where they can understand their own circumstances. Now, if people think that they can get to that answer by you know, looking at lots of scans, then fine. My argument is, is that I think we will come to understand that better um, through trying to understand more about our history, through understanding more about the ideas and uh, concepts that we've generated to get to grips with that question um, in the past. And if we can do more and more to accumulate that, to assimilate it and understand our insights um, that we've developed as human beings over centuries about this particular question, and then that's probably going to be the most fruitful way forward. And in that sense, I'm not, how could you, you be in denial of neuros? I mean, it's can't deny neuroscience, it's just a field of inquiry. What I'm saying is, is that I think there's probably other ways and better ways um, of trying so, to get to grips with this particular okay. question. Um, and Neil. I'm interested in talking to people Neil, who want to do stop, that. Stop, stop. Neil. Um, I understand that people think I'm telling them and trying to regulate to stop them shopping. I'm not. What I'm saying is that what I want on offer is the full range of choices, including the choice not to choose. And that's the thing that's been eradicated from our society, that you have to go out there and you have to play that singular game. And it seems to me that the, 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 the unanswerable, um, undeniable point is that once upon a time we had different visions of, of utopia, different notions of how our world could be. And that's the thing that's been eradicated. There is only one way to be. There is only one direction for our society. If you're outside of that, you're a lunatic, you're mad, you're not playing the game, you're not keeping up. It's the reintroduction of utopias, of different ways for our society to be, not different choices down the shopping aisles, but actually different ways of living the good life and having a good society. That's what I'm interested in, and we need the spaces and the opportunities, the emotional and physical and democratic spaces in which we can choose different ways to be. And Joe. Okay, so 
two points. Uh, first point is the brain is not the person. The second point, not all causes are compelling causes. There are reasons for our actions, which may be causes for our actions, but they're not compelling causes. We are motivated by reasons, and so we are motivated by aspirations, and those aspirations might include our aspiration to change society if we think we need to change it. Thank you. Can we all thank the panel? Um, and, and now could you just go and do whatever you want? <laughs>